Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good morning, Alloc. It's Tuesday, the 28th of June, 2050. Let's get you started for the day. Opening your blinds. Morning. Um, what's the, what's the temperature outside? It's 32 degrees outside. Yes, the heat wave continues. Inside, it's 19 degrees, as you requested. Your heat pump is on, extracting the hot air. And 100% of your energy today has come from renewable sources. We recharged your home battery overnight when demand on the grid was low. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, right. Can you just quickly tell me what is on my agenda for today? In 24 minutes, you are recording the Babbage podcast with Vijay Vaithiswaran at The Economist Studio. Oh, oh completely forgot. Uh, okay. Is my car ready to go? Your car is fully charged. Don't worry, we did this with 100% renewable energy from your battery too, as it's your prioritised device. (sighs) Thank goodness. Oh, by the way, can you please prioritise charging my headphones while I'm out? Uh, I'd like to listen to the podcast later when I'm back. That's all done. Have a great day, Alok. It isn't hard to imagine living in a smart home where everything is powered by clean electricity. Indeed, electrifying as much as possible of our daily lives is a key step in the world's goals to reduce greenhouse gas pollution and curb global warming. That transition to a more environmentally friendly future not only needs more electricity from clean sources, it also needs a new type of electrical grid, radically smarter, more responsive and more robust. What are the technologies the world needs to make that clean energy future a reality? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today we'll ask, how soon will the technology needed to move to a greener world be ready for widespread deployment? And given the mounting global energy crisis right now, how can countries ensure the security of their energy supply without derailing their climate ambitions? I'm joined on today's episode of Babbage by Vijay Vaithiswaran, The Economist's Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. Now, Vijay's just written a special report about climate technologies for The Economist, which is what we'll be taking inspiration from today. But regular listeners will recall that he was also the host of To a Lesser Degree, our podcast series around the COP26 Climate Summit last year. I highly recommend listening if you haven't already. Vijay, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be with you. 
Now, BJ, you started on a mammoth project some time ago, putting together this uh, special report. What questions were you trying to answer when you started? So initially, nearly a year ago, when I proposed this idea, I thought, what great climate technologies will be breakthroughs in 2050? But obviously, given the energy shocks that came at the end of last year in Europe, as well as the invasion of Ukraine and the Russian oil embargo, the gas crisis in Europe, and how all of this affected energy markets on one hand, and secondly, looked like it might derail the global momentum towards dealing with climate change coming out of the COP26 summit. I said, you know what, this is really not the time to be talking about 2050 in a chin-stroking way about things that may or may not happen. Let me look at what's here and now. I wanted to see in a practical way what the next 10, 15 years would look like. And is it possible to thread the needle to reconcile energy security and climate security? Or is this something of a, a virtue signaling exercise that, in fact, the climate agenda may be derailed by a decade? Okay, well, at the start of the show, we heard a snippet of uh, my future in the net zero world. And one thing you don't know about me, Vijay, is that I've also invented a time machine that uh, has taken me to the future and back again. Now, I want to know from your expert view, was it a realistic impression of the technology that might be available in the next um, few decades? Absolutely. In fact, I would say, you know, this is a combination of technologies that are available today and are making their way to market in as soon as the next three to five years in the advanced markets like the United Kingdom, like California, maybe some other parts of the world as well. Um, The technologies for a demand side response for smart grids, for energy storage in your home, or let's remember electric vehicles, which are taking off like gangbusters around the world, are actually energy storage devices as well. When they're enabled for bi-directional charging, your car can not only take power from the grid, but can provide power to the grid at, at key moments to help prevent it from going to overload. The technologies have gotten a lot better, in particular, the software systems, the machine learning, to make this seamless, to work together, to connect the smart home Uh, solar with the battery, with the demand management software that makes it easy to use. One of the things you you mentioned there uh, was batteries, storage. Um, This is a a question that comes up whenever we talk about renewable energy and building more windmills, building more solar panels to feed into the grid. Of course, renewable energy, famously, it's intermittent. And so you need ways of storing it at different scales. For the home, for example, how important do you think home storage, home batteries are going to play in the transition that you're writing about? I I think it's going to be an important part of it. Um, where you have home energy systems, particularly with solar. Just to take an example in California, where a huge amount of solar has been deployed and much more is going to be deployed, 95% of the solar home systems that are now waiting to be deployed for approval, ready to roll and just waiting for a tick box from the regulator, are with batteries included. That is, they're embedded with energy storage and with the software so that They can store the energy at a time when it's made when it's cheap or when the sun is abundant. They can sell it back to the grid when they can make a profit for the customer, for example. And so using solar panels and batteries at home, this is the start of the decentralized, democratized grid, isn't it? Where consumers and households and others can share the excess electricity they make to each other and that can meet some local demand. And if there's even more than that, it can be fed into the national grid whenever needed. And in fact, it's beginning to happen even in ways that are invisible, which is very exciting. And I've followed clean tech for quite a long time. But when I moved into my current apartment in New York, where I wrote this special report from when I wasn't reporting it from the field, pretty unremarkable New York place, 
good view, good location. AC and uh, heating works fine. The insulation is pretty good. And I said, well, this is uh, what you get in New York. Uh, it wasn't marked as a green building. But in the course of doing the research for this, I discovered that one of the world's biggest energy management companies, an Italian company called NLX, actually has installed big batteries in the basement of my high-rise. And in some of the other buildings that the landlord has around New York, they have solar panels and batteries and, and sophisticated software. So they aggregate this power. And when the local utility is about to reach a, a blackout or brownout in the middle of summer, it calls on that power and seamlessly feeds into the grid, prevents a blackout. The landlord gets some extra profits. My rent is a little bit lower and my utility charges are a bit lower and I don't suffer a brownout. And all this is done without me even being asked or told or having to make fiddly choices on an app every hour for what temperature setting I want. Cold beer, hot showers, comfortable apartment and energy services that actually work. I think that's, that's the vision. So Vijay, let's broaden all of this out a little bit further. So electrifying everything is all well and good, but do you think that a grid can be entirely made up of renewable sources? The short answer is yes, but it may not be. If you'd asked this question uh, even a few months ago, a group of our climate and energy uh, writers and editors at The Economist were in one of our internal meetings. We were debating this very point. Uh, is it possible? What do we know from uh, not only the modelers and the people who think about it in theory, but also the practical grid men and women that are actually running these systems around the world? And it was an open question, in part because historically, energy experts, system managers who are very, very conservative people, right? They're charged with keeping the lights on at any cost. They don't like to take risk. They saw renewable energy as a, a nice, frivolous thing at the margin. But if you got beyond 10 or 20 percent of renewable energy, particularly the intermittent sort that we're talking about, wind and solar, that it, you could never get to even 50 percent without the system having major problems, never mind 100 percent. So if we're talking about even getting to 50 percent renewables, that means that the other half would still have to be coming from some other backup source, um, coal, or maybe even another fossil fuel. Nuclear power, though, is another carbon-free option, and we've talked about that before on the show. Now, Germany faces a particular problem in this regard because its nuclear power is being phased out for political reasons. It isn't a viable option as a backup. So they've had to come up with some other ideas. In fact, the problem of extended periods of no wind and no sun is such a challenge, they even have their own word for it as I found out when I was reporting. Uh, you have a term for them, uh, what is it? Dunkelflaute, we say in German. That's right, uh, the dark doldrums, as it were. Mm. Um, that must keep you up at night uh, as uh, someone responsible for keeping the lights on. How do you cope with this? Right now, we still have enough uh, backup capacity available. I mean, there are still some coal-fired power plants. We have uh, gas-fired power plants. Currently, we are in a rather comfortable situation, I would say. But we all know that this is not the future. While I was in Berlin, I visited 50 Hertz, which is a Berlin-based utility that controls the flow of electricity to roughly a quarter of Germany in the east and north of the country. At a control center, I asked Dirk Biermann, who is in charge of system operations, how they operate the grid. As we see here, the, the big screen, uh, this screen is uh, for the overview. So everything is controlled uh, remotely from here. So we don't have to go to any remote place for switching. We can do everything from here. And we can see also the status of all the elements in the grid from here. I understand you have more than uh, half of your 
Yes. Power generation mm. now comes from uh, renewables, is that right? That's right. Uh, of course, it depends a little bit on the weather. <laughs> so uh, just in the last quarter, we had a percentage of more than 60% renewables in the grid. And the direction of change is going higher, am I right, with more build-out of renewables? Definitely. Our target in 50 hertz is to reach the 100% renewables share in 2032. This is wind and solar. This is, in our case, mainly wind and solar, yes. So Vijay, that sounds incredibly ambitious. 100% renewables through a grid. I mean, is that possibly too ambitious? Well, look, ambition is what's required now to be able to deal with the climate crisis, right? We have seen, just in the last couple of months, California had nearly 99%, a very big state, from wind and solar alone. Part of Australia's grid uh, was run at 100%. Denmark, 100% wind. Now, this isn't permanent or sustainable yet, but we now see that it is possible. And now we're rethinking about this, even among utility folks who are saying, actually, as long as we have the right kind of supporting infrastructure, let's say energy storage, maybe some kind of firm power we can rely on, we can certainly get to 80% of intermittent renewables. If you go to 100%, you'd need to overbuild. It'd be much more expensive, was what the modeling says. So it is possible, but there are challenges. Dirk Bierman, who I met at 50 Hertz, told me about some of the difficulties of balancing a fully renewable smart grid. There are two main challenges. The one challenge is the balancing challenge that we have to make sure that uh, the intermittent renewables meet the demand in the grid and that we keep the, the system balanced, which is a challenge because we can never know exactly what will be the infeed from the wind, what will be the infeed uh, from the solar power. Uh, we rely there very much on good uh, forecasts, of course, but forecasts are never accurate. So we always have to take care that we have some reserve margins to do the necessary real-time balancing in the end. The other challenge is that you are never sure that you have enough power. So you always have to provide some backup capacities to make sure that you have also a secure power supply in case that there's no wind and that there's no sun, for instance, during nighttime. At any price, we have to make sure that uh, electricity supply is, is, is kept. So, for instance, we have to shift from renewable energy that cannot be carried to other power plants that normally would not run, just to make sure that we have enough electricity in the grid that we can also carry to the consumers. And these are, of course, always moments of tension where we have to make sure that we take the right measures, because in, in, in such moments, it is against time that we have to react uh, fast. Okay, so with upgraded grids, better grids, we can get a lot closer to renewables only. But it would also be surely a good thing to have backup systems for when renewables just aren't available. I mean, that's going to happen. Um, something that's been talked about a lot are battery systems at the level of grids. So not battery systems just in your home, but actually grid scale battery systems. What's available there? Well, to me, this is the most important kind of enabling technology for decarbonizing energy systems that is feasible. We can see the pathway to get there, in part because we have some already. The same kind of lithium-ion batteries that move electric cars that people are familiar with or power your laptops and, and smartphones have been deployed at scale on, on the grid. In California, they can provide four hours of power to the grid, which is quite a lot by the standards of energy storage, at grid scale using lithium-ion technologies. And now bids have gone out to extend that to up to eight hours. And so this is feasible. However, 
when we look to the next generation, we're really looking at technologies that go beyond lithium-ion technologies to several other kinds of energy storage that would be long-duration storage. Okay, so it's getting quite exciting, all of the technologies you've already mentioned, and there's even more to come. Um, So how optimistic are you feeling now about all of this? I was particularly struck spending time on the German grid operators' control system and talking to their engineers. And reliability is absolutely essential in a country like Germany. This is one of the most reliable grids in the world. And having the grid system operator tell me, we're at 55% wind and solar today, and we expect to be at 100% by 2032, and we know how to get there. We are very confident that we'll get there. That, to me, was quite eye-opening. And I think that it, it should change one's expectations and thinking. Now, again, it can be extremely expensive to go to the full 100%. Societies may want to stop short of that and have other forms of so-called firm power, backup power, that could come from a variety of sources. Nuclear would be one good way to do it because it's carbon-free. But nevertheless, I think that the idea is now proven and certainly accepted by practical people who are in charge of running the grid rather than just, let's say, environmentalists throwing rocks. And even though we have the clean tech available, it doesn't mean that it's going to all happen tomorrow, right? There is going to be a phase of transition where there's going to be dirty fuel used for for some time. Absolutely. And fossil fuels will be with us for quite a long time. The real challenge, I think, is knowing how to phase out the dirtiest of them. In this case, it's coal when it comes to both local pollution as well as greenhouse gases um, and how to uh, find alternatives. And in the case of Europe, which wants to make this transition in the next decade, they're not talking 30 years, in part to get away from Russian gas reliance, they're going to use imported gas in the meanwhile. And that creates a whole set of issues as well about how do you do that while maintaining climate ambition without getting trapped into what's called fossil fuel lock-in. Well, coming up on the show, we'll explore exactly how the transition should be navigated. And we'll put all of this into the context of the energy crisis. But before that, it's time for a quick reminder that in the current edition of The Economist, you can explore climate technologies in great detail as Vijay has written a mammoth 10-page report on all of the things he's been talking about in the show. It's all in glorious detail and it's absolutely worth your time. Hello, can I also recommend that listeners stick their head in the sand? Uh, No, actually, uh, what I mean is that there is another wonderful article in this week's issue that I really enjoyed reading. Uh, Katrine Brahek, our environment editor, went deep underground and reports on the world's first disposal facility for nuclear waste in Finland. I'd highly recommend the piece. You know, I've not seen Katrine for a few days. I'm hoping she got out of there because that's going to be for disposal of nuclear waste for the eons. Um, Well, I'll make sure she's back. Yes, uh, look, for all of those things, head to economist.com slash podcast offer to get the best possible subscription offer. There's a link in the show notes. Vijay and I will be back in just a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
BJ, you told me at the beginning of the show that you had to refocus your reporting recently to take into account global events. Can you explain to me exactly how the war in Ukraine and the energy troubles that have followed that will affect the world's attempts to move away from fossil fuels? So energy nerds like to talk about a trilemma, three pillars uh, in thinking about energy policy and energy markets. One is dealing with environmental consequences, particularly climate change of energy has taken precedence in Europe, dominated the discussions in the last 10 years. But the second one is energy security, which can relate to geopolitics, uh, getting your energy from dodgy sources like uh, Russia, as it turns out, or even keeping the lights on, as simple as that. And of course, the third pillar is economics, making sure energy is affordable. And we've seen both the economics and the security dimensions come to the top of the agenda in countries around the world with petrol prices in America soaring and becoming a political problem around the world as well. And of course, the reliability of energy from certain parts of the world in particular Russia at the moment. I wanted to find out, are there ways to advance an ambitious decarbonization agenda that's renewables, but also very important bundle of technologies like smart grid energy storage and related technologies, while investing in the kind of things to support it, which Europe is looking at, but other parts of the world, even California is looking at natural gas to support that transition and do it in a way that's climate consistent. That's not the dirtiest way of doing it. And that's really the the very hard question I think that the world needs to come to grips with is how can we continue to use fossil fuels in a way that doesn't undermine the climate transition? Well, let, let's talk about that transition part a bit more. Uh, right now, there are plenty of shale oil and gas fields operating all over the world. Is there anything that can be done to reduce the climate impacts of those specific quite dirty fuels? The short answer is yes. And here's actually some good news that was more surprisingly positive than I expected. There's a lot of data now that's emerging from satellite observations, from on the ground, from some other ways of detecting leaks that suggest that a gas is made in a way that releases a lot of methane from the flaring process, which is a leakage that's lit on fire or just gets out from pipelines and tanks and so on. And the Russian gas pipeline network is notoriously bad. But there's also ways of dealing with it, and that has to do with the technologies for measuring, monitoring, and managing these sorts of emissions from natural gas. That's why I traveled to Odessa in Texas, in the heart of the Permian Basin, which is really the center of America's shale, oil, and gas industry. Now, the vast area might look like any other pretty desolate part of the rural Texan landscape from above, but in fact, it's filled with thousands of oil and gas wells and storage facilities with pipelines for those hydrocarbons to get to market. So those planes taking off from the airport in Odessa, they fly low at about a thousand meters and their cameras scan what passes beneath them. But they're not looking at the ground, they're looking at the air just above the ground to detect the telltale infrared signature of methane as it escapes from leaks at the wells as well as along the pipeline infrastructure or at storage facilities in the area. So in a sense, they're, they're monitoring natural gas's impact on global warming. Can you just talk to me about methane and its role in climate change and global warming? I mean, we know about carbon dioxide, but where does methane fit in and what can anyone do about that? Uh, You're right that carbon dioxide is the most 
widely known aspect of um, gases that contribute to climate change as a, as a warming gas. Methane, which is the most important component of natural gas, but also has other sources, you know, agriculture. We all know flatulent cows famously release methane. But a big source of methane emissions is from natural gas leakage. And it matters because over the next 20 years, which is a vital period for coming to grips with climate change, that leaked methane may have 80 times the impact in terms of climate warming as carbon dioxide. So it's shorter lived, but much more powerful and potent as a greenhouse gas. That's why it matters. And the second reason is that we're emitting a lot more of it than was thought or understood or admitted by the energy industry particularly. And this fact is coming to light because we now have rapidly advancing technology for detecting it. So what kinds of technologies and instruments are there to start to detect these leaks? One is satellite observation. And so that's giving the bird's eye view, as it were, or, or really the way up in the in space kind of view. Airplane-based approaches and drones are giving much closer ground view. They can cover less space, obviously, in a given day than a, a satellite could, but you get maybe a finer resolution of view and different technologies are being used in the drones. So how much of a difference would reducing methane leaks actually make to the, the progression of, of climate change? Well, uh, there was a paper published this March by uh, researchers from Stanford. And what they found was that roughly one ton of methane was being lost for every nine tons that were not. And when you go through the, the math of the greenhouse gas impact, it turns out that the companies in the Permian, if this is the correct amount, is, is validated by other research as well, will actually end up causing much more damage to the climate from those leaks then the natural gas will produce when you burn it over the next 20 years after the gas is sold, which is stunning. It's absolutely staggering and, and unsustainable. And so that's the kind of result we're beginning to find in research that's being done comprehensively around the world. That's incredible. That's an incredible sort of statement, because also given that it's not a problem that's been on people's minds until relatively recently. So, I mean, are governments or members of the energy industry actually trying to tackle this in any sort of meaningful way? Somewhere else where these methane leaks are particularly important is Germany. I went to the German economics ministry to talk to Patrick Greichen, who is a senior climate official. He told me how he thinks methane leaks should be dealt with. I think it is of crucial importance that we really tackle uh, methane leakage uh, through the whole value chain. And therefore, um, from basically well to the final consumer, leakage needs to be minimized and it needs to be well below a rate where, where at the end of the day, gas is uh, worse than coal. Mm -hmm. And this is not about incentives, this is about hard regulation. We have uh, already regulation in place uh, in Germany, but we don't have that mu uh, much of gas production. And I very much welcome uh, any efforts by the European Commission to regulate that. Now, regulation of this sort of emission is something that the European Commission has to be thinking about, surely, because the EU wants to use natural gas as part of its clean energy plan. I mean, it does sound a bit contradictory to me. Isn't using fossil fuels what everyone wants to avoid? Um, you know, opening new natural gas facilities will surely lock Europe into another few decades of dirty energies in the face of, as you said earlier, aggressive attempts to try and reduce its uh, fossil fuel addiction. Look, you put your finger on the dilemma. This is exactly right, that if you were to thoughtlessly just permit lots of new natural gas plants and import facilities and long-term contracts for those 
LNG facilities, uh, liquefied natural gas imports, which is the normal way of doing business in the gas markets. What you'd end up is for the next 30, 40 years, have lots of gas being brought in and burned in the conventional way, which would lead to a climate nightmare. It would mean that the goals that Europe and other countries have for meeting the Paris Agreement's targets on climate change would not be met. But what's happening is that Europe has actually thought hard about how to deal with this issue to avoid fossil fuel lock-in. And Germany in particular, because they put themselves in a box by phasing out their nuclear power, which is carbon-free, of course, uh, by trying to phase out their coal power, although they're going a bit slower on that now. In effect, they bet on natural gas as the backup to get to the renewables revolution that they're counting on. But they're giving natural gas kind of a limited life. That is, they're insisting that any natural gas facilities for import have to be limited in life, that they can't last 30, 40 years, uh, that they also have to be future-proof. And that's the euphemism that's used. And in fact, Patrick Reichen explained to me how this new LNG infrastructure is being built with a low-carbon future in mind. When it comes to LNG import terminals, it's also a question of, are they hydrogen ready? And there, uh, I think it is uh, uh, fair to say that Parts of it can be hydrogen ready mm. and other parts not. So you do have to be careful creating an infrastructure that can only really use gas. Um, and that's why... Give an example of what you mean by part well, of Well, uh, basically it's about the, the concrete uh, and the build uh, and the harbor. It's about the tanks. They can be used. But everything that is uh, uh, around basically the regasification unit uh, that the LNG terminal needs, the, the pipes and, and everything there, that is very much geared towards gas, and especially the LNG regasification unit. And we won't need that when we import hydrogen, uh, let's be honest. So in a way, I'd say a third, maybe 40% of what we build there can be reused in a green world, and the other parts uh, won't be used. Which is why, when it comes to LNG import infrastructure, we'll be having floating, flexible units for large parts of it. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, so-called FSRUs. Right. And then, after 10 years, they can also easily be dismantled. And in a way, even if we don't need them at some point in time, they have an insurance value if we get into a crisis again. So to make natural gas consistent with the renewable future, you need to work on methane leaks and then use hydrogen. Uh, at the end of the day, what we need is regulating methane leakage and making clear that this is only a bridge technology and what we ultimately want is renewables and green hydrogen. So trying to green a fossil fuel doesn't work. At the end of the day, it's a fossil fuel and we should be all aware that we'll need it for some time, but it's nothing we want for uh, a longer period. Now, it's, it's clear that green hydrogen is kind of the fourth pillar next to renewables, efficiency and electrification. And we will need it in all those sectors where electrification doesn't work. Vijay, I know that you are, as well as everything else, the economist's hydrogen expert. So can you just unpack a little bit what Patrick means by the sectors where electrification doesn't work? Where does hydrogen fit into the green energy future? 
Once we make hydrogen from a source, let's remember it's a fuel, it's not an energy source, but if you make it from something like renewable energy, it's green hydrogen, you can use it to decarbonize those industries where it's very hard to get windmills to transform. For example, the steel industry or heavy industry, uh, places where there's a lot of industrial heat that's used, that's virtually impossible to do with renewable energy by itself. But hydrogen made in a green way could solve that problem over time. We know that it's possible to run natural gas plants on hydrogen instead if the the materials are are of a robust standard. And Germany is future-proofing the natural gas that they're bringing in and the power plants that they're allowing to be used by demanding that they be able to use things like hydrogen or other kinds of hydrogen derivatives, fuels that would be perfectly consistent with the uh, climate change rather than natural gas unabated. So we've explored smart grids, battery storage, methane leaks, also hydrogen as part of the green transition. Um, As we come to the end of the show, uh, how are you feeling after all your reporting on this about the trade-off between energy security and climate security? This is a time where it's easy to feel despondent. I think if you're concerned about climate change and take it seriously, there is a real prospect in parts of the world that we're going to be walking sideways, if not backwards, Coal use is up, oil use is up, of course, natural gas is is going through the roof in terms of price, but also in terms of consumption. And if we don't step in with a thoughtful, joined up approach that links together policy with markets, with incentives and behavior change, we're going to end up with a much dirtier decade that actually sets efforts at climate change back terribly. And, And I think that's the danger. For me, the good news and the reason why I went to places like California, and in Germany, which are at the vanguard of climate policy, but also to places like Texas, which are in some ways the source of the problem, producing the fossil fuels that we could get locked into, is to find how do you bridge the green future with the necessary kind of fossil infrastructure that needs to get us to that green future. It's not realistic to go to 100% renewables overnight. That's a silly idea. But on the other hand, to have that as a vision, you need to do all the supporting infrastructure of smart grid, demand management, consumer empowerment, and of course, making fossil fuels like natural gas ready for the future and done in a clean way, managing their emissions. To me, that's sort of a grown-ups, joined-up kind of approach that I think becomes clear, and that left me more optimistic that it is possible. Did you find good examples that gave you reasons for optimism where this joined-up thinking is actually happening? Here's the good news and why I left a little bit encouraged, having gone in, again, somewhat discouraged into this uh, journey. Um, I went to a power plant called Reuter West, which is a large coal-fired facility, one of the biggest powering Germany. It's run by Vattenfall, a Swedish firm, a, a huge utility. And that in itself would be depressing because this is part of the problem of dealing with climate, these massive coal plants that have been around for a while and are going to run for another few decades. However, What's happening there is actually a transformation. It's a synthesis between what's happening with old energy and the renewable future, because they're transforming this to go from coal to natural gas, ultimately to hydrogen, and they're combining it with elements like energy storage and combined heat and power. And that's going to allow this to be a power plant of the future built on the bones of crushed up dinosaurs, the old fossil bones of a coal power plant. We have here a power plant and we, in the moment, our fossil, what we need is coal. I was shown around by Marika Breunung, who is a project engineer at the plant. Then this plant is ending in 2030. We first went inside to see a mega boiler, how 
the company heats the water to the right temperature. The power to heat idea is that um, we have here uh, boilers and we need energy, uh, for instance, renewables energy, what we have for wind parks, solar energy, and when we have can use it, then we get the energy inside the boiler and heating the boiler. So the idea is to uh, heat water. Yes, to and to store the water and to give to customers as uh, hot water for heating. Am I right? Yes, for heating and for warm water. And, for warm water. and then we toured outside what I can only describe as a massive thermos flask, an enormous facility that's just being completed that will be an energy storage unit that can be used to draw heat in the middle of winter, let's say, if there's a system failure, it can provide more than 12 hours of heat to the uh, local heat and power system. But it can also be converted to electricity to provide power during times when the grid might otherwise have a brownout or blackout. It's uh, also a new project uh, and we see here our heat storage and uh, inside we would like heat water. When we have no energy and when it's very cold in winter and we need more water for our customers, then we can use it and push it in our heat unit. So this really gives the kind of integrated, flexible energy system that we need to start thinking about if we're going to tackle that tension between energy and climate security in earnest. That's absolutely fascinating. Vijay, thank you for explaining that and also for explaining the future of the climate energy transition to me. So thank you for your time. It's been a great pleasure, Alok. And thank you for listening to Babbage. We're not the only podcast from The Economist this week looking at climate technologies, by the way. The most recent episode of The World Ahead explores the future of green travel. Join host Tom Standage as he takes a flight in the year 2042 and asks, can long-haul flights ever be made climate neutral? Find The World Ahead wherever you get your podcasts. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer, and also the voice of my future smart home, is Hannah Mourinho. I think that's quite enough from the smart speaker. <laughs> I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.